Beloved saints, this is God's word. And so it deserves and requires uh, your undivided attention. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not heard what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or destroy it? After looking around at them all, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Uh, So ends the reading of God's word. Let us ask our God to uh, be with us and bless us in our time in his word. Our gracious God, you who dwell within the pages of your word, we, we long to know you. We long to see you and to see you revealed from your scriptures. And so we ask that you would open them to us. And that our hearts and our eyes would behold the King of glory. And that you would give us the faith to receive all that you give us in your word, we pray. In Jesus' matchless and perfect name, amen. You may be seated. I think one thing that we all know is true is that we all mess up and we all fail. We fail ourselves, we fail those we love, and we fail our God. And when we do, we all face a temptation. And it's the temptation to do penance. Penance is when you punish yourself in an attempt to show how sorry you are And with the hope that if you just do enough for the person you've offended, 
that you'll somehow heal that broken relationship. If you are human, you know the temptation of penance. The Roman Catholic Church has even institutionalized it and made it a a practice, an official practice of, of their religion. If you sin and you go to your priest, he will most likely give you things that you can do to show God how sorry you are and to help repair the damage. It might be uh, some acts of kindness or it could be Hail Marys or Our Fathers. Now, we Protestants are a little less formal in our approach to penance, but we are no less tempted by it. So what do we do? Uh, We isolate ourselves from from those we don't feel like we deserve to be around. We put ourselves in the penalty box. We treat ourselves like social lepers just to show how serious we are and how we don't feel worthy. Or some are tempted to inflict punishment on themselves, whether that's actually physical harm or uh, emotional or uh, maybe they break something that's really important to them to punish themselves or or they sell it so they can't have it anymore. Uh, gift giving is also an act of penance. Let me buy you flowers. Let me buy you jewelry. Let me buy you a new car. And then are we okay? Are we at peace again? And behind every act of penance is that idea that we can do something to heal the peace, to make a restored relationship that we can somehow take care of and make up for the damage done by our sin. That if we just do enough, if we're just creative enough, if we just deprive ourselves of enough joy, that we can in, uh, restore that peace that we have damaged. And we can have that peace with the ones we've hurt, with our family, with our friends, and even with our God. But such acts are never helpful. Such acts are always destructive. Intending to help, we make things worse. Because our solutions begin and they end with what? Us. Our solutions place their hope in our own strength, our own creativity. And that, beloved, is a recipe for disaster. And what we're going to see in our passage today is that the road to healing is not found in what you bring. The road to healing is found in who Jesus is and what he brings. And that's really what we want to look at. And so as we look at these um, three little uh, episodes in Jesus' ministry, we want to see how really they revolve around two conflicts, one about fasting and one about the Sabbath. And as we look at those we're going to see that in both there's a temptation to do penance in order to restore peace with God. And then we want to see the catastrophic consequences of those attempts. And then in response to that, we'll see how Jesus shows himself to be the true answer, the true way to peace and restoration. And so that's what we want to look at. Uh, The first conflict we see comes on the heels uh, of what we looked at last week. Uh, We saw Jesus... um, uh, call a disciple, his name was Levi, later uh, referred to or also referred to as Matthew. And after he called Matthew, Matthew or Levi threw a feast for Jesus and all his tax-collecting friends. 
It was, it was a joyous passage. A, a tax collector, sort of the, the worst of the worst. These were the sanctioned extortionists in the ancient world. He repented and found eternal life. He abandoned all his riches and, and, and sought to take the hope he had found to his friends and his tax collecting, uh, uh, colleagues. And so it was a scene of great joy and celebration. And, and there, uh, Levi threw a feast for Jesus and his friends. And yet, one of life's unbreakable rules seems to be that no, how, no matter how wonderful and glorious uh, a situation is, somebody will be there to, to throw a wet blanket on it. And sure enough, someone or some people ask Jesus, why do your disciples feast? Why aren't they more like the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees? They're known for their many fasts. And we do want to be careful here because fasts aren't bad. There's many fasts in the Bible. Some are commanded to do annually, like the the Day of Atonement was a day of fasting. Some were called at unique times, like when Joel, uh, the prophet, is, is told to command the people to fast because of their sin and ask God for mercy. And some are at unique times uh, of seeking God, like when Esther was going to go before the king and ask for mercy for the people, and she asked all her, her Jewish uh, um, uh, friends and, and, and uh, citizens to fast with her as she prepared. There isn't a problem with fasting, nor were Jesus and his disciples neglecting those national commanded fasts. Something else is going on. So what is it? Well, we kind of need to remember the context here, that, that Israel is in a particularly bad state, and it's not the first time. Uh, devotion to God has, has waned. Uh, the people have grown comfortable once again with their sin. Uh, and, and like in times past when this takes place, God has brought punishment onto his people. And so, like he's handed them over before to uh, the Babylonians and the Assyrians, now he's handed them over to the Romans. History is repeating itself. It's like when the prophets came and warned Israel. In fact, in Hosea 6, God addressed uh, what was going on in earlier days as saying that God had torn them that he might restore them, that he had broken them down, that he might build them or bind them back up. The people in Jesus' day, the people of God, were a battered, torn, frayed people, and they were dying spiritually. I think we all know what it's like to feel this way, to feel powerless against our sin. And for each of us, that might be a different area a different kind of sin we all know what our sins are for some it could be lust and pornography for some it it could be deceit and lies for some it's coveting and always wanting more for some it's anger mistreating people Whatever it is, we know what it's like to lose the battle against that sin. We, we know what rattles around in our heads when we do. The questions we ask ourselves, the thoughts we think. And we know it could be worse. If people knew what I was really like, 
if God knew what I was really like. And so we tell ourselves, if I'm not careful, I'm going to lose everything. I'm going to lose everyone. I, I have to do something. And that's when that temptation for penance comes. This is what John's disciples and those Pharisees were known for. They didn't just do the national feast. They did those and many more. They were always fasting and and telling others to do the same because they thought that that maybe, just maybe, if they did enough, if if they showed God how serious they really were, that maybe they'd be able to fix what had been torn and bind up what had been broken. That they'd be able to restore peace with God. And so they added feasts, their own, onto the ones that God had given. They figured if his were good, more would be better. And they looked at Jesus and he wasn't doing that. And they wondered if if he's really serious about the restoration of Israel like he claims to be, why isn't he promoting more fast? And then as we move into chapter 6, something similar is going on with the Sabbath. Jesus and his disciples have been teaching and they've been healing and they've been showing mercy and they've been doing so much and, and now they're tired and now they're hungry and they're walking along the road and they're, they're, they come along a grain field and, and the disciples uh, pluck some grain, they rub it between their fingers and they, they eat the, the, the kernels. And out pop the Pharisees. <laughs> and they say, aha, you're breaking the law. And we, we do need to wrestle with what law did they think the disciples were breaking. Some might think it's theft, that that, that that grain doesn't belong to you. But the law made provision that if you're walking along, you can pick grain. You can't use a sickle and harvest your neighbor's grain, but you can have a snack. But that's not what they're worried about. Here their concern is is not that the disciples were taking grain that didn't belong to them, They were accusing the disciples of of harvesting, of laboring, of working on the Sabbath. And we have to recognize, how did they see this? Well, one thing we've noticed in our passage, what we see is, is that the disciples are looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They were watching. They're looking for something. And what's going on here is the same thing going on with the fast. There were those in those days who thought, if we just add enough restrictions to the Sabbath, we'll never break it. If we simply don't allow anything, if we're super hyper-vigilant, if we we hide behind trees and make sure everybody else keeps the Sabbath, then God will know how much we love Him. God will know how serious we are, and everything will be okay. And it's... It's not without reason. We need to be careful here not to judge them too harshly. The Sabbath has a big place in the history of God's people's rebellion and, and, and punishment. Uh, we read in, in Jeremiah how they went into exile for 70 years because for 490 years they failed to give the land its Sabbaths every seven years. 
490 divided by 7. God says, you owe my land 70 years, and so I'm going to take you away. They know the importance of the Sabbath. But their solution is to take what God has said and say, let's add to it so that we can be safe. They figured if God gives them two laws, four laws are better, and six might even be better than that. And on and on. And so their solution is to keep adding to what God has said and show them that they're serious. And that way of thinking becomes abundantly clear when they actually watch him in the synagogue on the Sabbath to see if he might heal, we're told, so that they might have reason to accuse him. Can you see how warped their thinking has become? How are they spending their Sabbath? They're in the synagogue, not paying attention to the word, not not singing. They're watching to see if he might show somebody kindness so that they can accuse him. They're so lost in a labyrinth of their own making that they're actually more interested in their own made-up laws than they are in God's mercy being shown to somebody in need. They claim to be seeking God. And yet, we have to ask, would they even recognize God if he showed up and stood right in front of them? Have you noticed how Jesus has a way when he's asked questions of never really answering the question that gets asked? Often because it's a trap, but often too, because it doesn't really hit the most important issue. It hits... little details that are are incidental. And there's always something more important going on. And he's he's far more interested in the heart issues than he is the little details. And we see this in how he responds to the question about the Sabbath. He doesn't get into a debate about whether plucking a head of grain actually constitutes hard labor or not. Instead, he just opens up the scriptures and says, you remember David, king guy, Lord's anointed? Because he's more interested not so much in the minutia of the law of God, but he's interested in the more important question of who is the God of the law. And so he goes to David. And an episode in, in 1 Samuel 21 when David's running for his life because God has anointed David to be Saul's replacement as king over Israel. And Saul knows he's been rejected, and Saul's angry, and so he's pursuing David. And David and his men have been running, and they're exhausted, and they're hungry, and they end up at the temple. And, and they ask the priest for help, for bread. And the priest say, the only thing we have here is the bread of the presence. And that bread wasn't supposed to be eaten by anybody but the priests. So what do we do? Do we punish the Lord's anointed who's been doing the Lord's work? Do we say, you can look at it, but you can't eat it, on with you now? What's more important, the symbolism of that bread or God's call to feed the hungry? And the priests didn't think twice because they served in the temple and, and they know what the temple is about. The whole purpose, the whole existence of the temple is about God coming down to needy people and saying, seek refuge, seek help, seek comfort, seek mercy in me. 
Beyond that, the priests were, were tasked with making sure that the hungry of Israel were fed. That's why they're there. And here's David, hungry, because he's been doing what the Lord's called him to do. And so while it might not be regular, they know who their God is, and, and they don't think twice. They, they know that if they withheld the bread and neglected David, they would not be honoring the God of the temple. They would be going against everything he and his temple stood for. Withholding that bread would, would be nothing more than a hollow act of piety and devotion simply meant to make themselves look good but not serve anybody else. And that's exactly what the Pharisees are doing when they pop out from behind the tree on the Sabbath and say, aha! Because like David and his men, Jesus and his disciples are hungry. Like David and his men, they've been out doing what the Lord's actually called them to. And rather than recognizing this like the priest did, the Pharisees say, we've got them. We have a chance to, to get them on a technicality. But look how Jesus responds. He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You can always tell when somebody's grown up in the church and when somebody hasn't because people who have grown up in the church, they hear that and they go, yeah. People who haven't say, what? If you show up at work tomorrow morning and your boss says, I am the Lord of Mondays, you're not going to think, well, yeah, obviously. You're going to think, you're, you're nuts. Jesus is, is saying to them, don't lecture me on the Sabbath. I know what it's about because I rule over it because I created it. And I gave it as a gift to my people. When you were in Egypt, did the Egyptians give you one day a week to rest? No, they didn't. They made you work and work and work until you were dying and then they said work harder. And when God called you out of that, what did he do? He said, okay, stop. Rest. Don't worry. Don't think that if if you stop working, everything's going to fall apart and all will be lost. The Sabbath was, was God's invitation to his people to understand that their hope was not in how hard they work, but in their God. And so they could stop and they could rest and relax and breathe. The Sabbath was God's invitation to stop trying to make peace with him and to rest in the peace that he gives as a free gift. Jesus is telling them that he is Lord of the Sabbath, that he gave his people the Sabbath to teach them that it was not in what they did, but in what God does that gives hope. That he gives peace. And we don't need to do more than he commands. We don't need to think that it all depends upon us, because the more we try to fix things, the worse we will make them. The Sabbath is meant to be a place where we learn about God's love and his mercy and his provision. And then just to make that clear, he healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. 
to demonstrate, to prove that the Sabbath is about learning to receive. That the Sabbath is, is God's provision, not ours. That the Sabbath is about learning our need and learning to surrender. And that's the exact opposite of what the Pharisees were trying to do. They were trying to take charge and, and to make peace. They were trying to restore things. Their, their Sabbath obsession had gotten so bad that they had become so out of touch with the God of the Sabbath that they couldn't recognize him when he was standing right in front of them. And so they claimed to want to pursue the God of Israel. And they wanted to pursue restoration with the God of Israel. And there he stood, the God they claimed to want, there he is showing mercy and restoration and grace and peace. He shows them that he's not just the Lord of the Sabbath, but he's the gracious Lord of the Sabbath, the kind and merciful Lord of the Sabbath. And how do they respond? With gratitude, with peace? No, we're told in chapter 6, verse 11, that they were filled with fury and began to discuss, which is a fancy biblical word for plot, what they might do with him. And I think all of this helps us to understand his response to their question about fasting back in chapter 5. I want to go back to that. When they asked him why his disciples don't fast like John's disciples, his response is characteristically strange. He says, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? In Israel in those days, weddings were big deals. They would often last a week. There was a big feast. It was a celebration. The only one crying was the bride's father. But could you imagine showing up to such a celebration in funeral attire, in sackcloth and ashes? Somebody brings a big tray of food by. You say, no, thank you, I'm fasting. Why aren't you? Could anything be more disrespectful to the wedding host? There's a time for mourning. There's a time for fasting. But a wedding is not one of those times. The people have been waiting for God to restore Israel. The people have been waiting for his Messiah to come. The people have been waiting for centuries. And now, he stands before them. They should be celebrating. There should be joy. And there should be feasting. And yet the Pharisees want to keep fasting because they don't want Jesus. They want someone else. They don't want the peace he gives. They want to help. They want to contribute. And they don't want a Savior who says he doesn't need help. And to explain the problem even more, he he goes on with a parable about mending garments and wineskins. Uh, both of these uh, images, the wineskins and the, and the garments, involve something old and something new. And, and often the way that this is understood is, is that we need to let go of the old and embrace the new. That, that if we cling to our old garments and our old wineskins, it's just 
They're just going to break and fade and tear and rip. And, and this passage is often used to say, let's get rid of the old, get rid of the old religion. Let's not read the Old Testament. Uh, the God of the Old Testament's bad, scary. Let's, let's get rid of that. God's doing a new thing in this world and we need to, we need to embrace that and get moving on. But there are so many problems with that understanding. Let me, let me just give a few. First, have you noticed in Luke's gospel so far, we're, we're five and a half chapters in, have you noticed how many times he's quoted the Old Testament so far? Quite a few. Clearly his problem is not with the scriptures. They are, after all, his scriptures. Another problem with this view is, who are the ones doing something new? Adding something new that doesn't fit? It's not Jesus. It's the Pharisees and their disciples. They're the ones instituting new requirements and saying this will fix the old problem. Finally, look at the last verse in chapter 5. No one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. (laughs) Everyone knows old wine is better. Jesus is saying, your problem is that you're trying to patch your garments with new fabric that doesn't match You're putting new wine into old cracked wineskins thinking it's going to make the wineskins supple and moist again. So what's going on? Well, let's go back to where we started. What's cracked? What's frayed? What's torn? What's weak and frail and on the verge of destruction? What needs restoration? It's us, his people. We are the old garment. We are the old wineskin. In fact, in Matthew's account of these two episodes, in both of them, Jesus quotes uh, Hosea 6. Let me, let me read that passage that I mentioned earlier, just in more context. Hosea says, Come, let us re, uh, return... Sorry. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. The Lord has torn us that he may heal us. The Pharisees say we're torn. We can heal ourselves. All we need is to find something new to sew on and it will take care of everything. By filling us up with something new, our cracks will disappear and we'll be healed. And Jesus says, how does covering a hole restore the old garment? How does pouring new wine into cracked wineskins make them supple again? It won't. It'll just ruin everything. The tear will get worse. The wineskins will crack. The wine will spill all over the place. They'll be... His solution is to actually heal. To actually restore. To actually make something new like he did with that withered hand. 
His solution isn't trying to paste a band-aid on, onto the problem so as to hide it. His solution is supernatural healing, something we could never do, even if we added a million rules and regulations to Scripture. Standing before these people is the only hope of healing and restoration. As, as Hosea said, he has torn, he must heal. And Jesus even alludes to how he will heal them. He says the day is coming when he will be taken from them. He would be led away and he'd be crucified. He would drink the bitter gall. And his side would be split open and his blood would pour out like wine out of torn wineskins. And he says that will be a tragic day. That will be a day for fasting. And yet that day, that willingness to suffer is their only hope for peace, for healing. And so the one thing they needed to do is the one thing they were unwilling to do. Stop trying to fix everything and turn to him. Stop trying to improve the Sabbath and learn to rest in him. They needed to learn to recognize God's grace and to bask in his grace and maybe then they would not fear and despise God's gracious work but delight in it. The road to healing is not found in what they bring but in who Jesus is and what he brings. Now we need to be careful. There is a tendency with passages like this and by passages like this, I mean passages that have Pharisees in them. They see Pharisees as villains. And to say something like, boy, I'm glad I'm not like them. Which is, by the way, a very Pharisaical prayer to pray. Let us remember where we started. We are all tempted by penance. We all want to contribute something when we mess up to make everything okay again. We're not supposed to despise the Pharisees. We're supposed to empathize with them and see our own weaknesses and tendencies in them because we are all by nature Pharisees. And so briefly, ever so briefly, I'd like to make three uh, closing reflections. The first is this. We all need to rest in Jesus. God's given us one day a week to learn how to do this, to stop to stop working, stop studying for school, stop being busy, stop contributing, and just receive. Just rest and receive. It's meant to teach us to stop thinking that God needs our help so that we might remember that we need his. You will not fix yourself by adding new cloth. You will not fix yourself by adding new wine. You need to learn a to depend upon the God who heals and depend upon him completely for restoration. Let Sunday be that time of learning to rest. So what do you do with your Sundays? Here's our second reflection. It would be easy to come up with a thousand annoying little rules and regulations to try to protect the Sabbath. 
But the Sabbath has been around a lot longer than you, and it will be around long after you're gone. It doesn't need your protection. It's doing okay. The Sabbath doesn't need you. You need the Sabbath. So if you want to know what to focus on, look at how Jesus spent his Sabbaths. He'd visit synagogues and either listen to God's word or proclaim it. But basically, he engaged in worship. Let us do the same. And from there, he often went to someone's home to share a meal where there would be fellowship and love and encouragement. Pretty good pattern for us to follow. And he healed. Now, I'm not telling you you need to go home and heal withered hands. You don't have that power and that's okay. But you can show love and kindness to people who are in need. That might be helping they get something done, or it might just be spending the afternoon with them. It might be listening. Simply put, the Sabbath is a time for loving God and loving others. And finally, one final reflection. Sunday is a time when God meets with his people in a unique way. And when you have the bridegroom in your presence, you should rejoice. You should be filled with joy, and you should feast. Is it any wonder then that when God's people gather for worship, they don't fast, but they share a meal? The Lord calls us to his table. And while it's small in volume, it is robust in anticipation and meaning. It tells us that there is a day coming when we will see the bridegroom face to face and we will enjoy a wedding feast the likes of which this world has never seen. And so as an anticipation of that, as a foretaste of that, the Lord invites us to come to his table with joy and gratitude, remembering that we have a God who restores torn garments and renews cracked wineskins. Let us pray. Our gracious Lord of the Sabbath, our loving bridegroom, we thank you that you are not far off. We thank you that you are not weak that you're not dependent upon us or our acts of penance. You're not dependent upon our creativity to add to what we think is lacking in your word. We thank you that you are sufficient and that you don't need our help. And so we ask you to help us learn to rest in you, help us to look to you and not ourselves for hope, and teach us to love you and to love others as you have loved us, to show kindness, to show mercy, to encourage, to open our homes and our lives, and help us to delight in your presence every day, but especially each Lord's Day, when you call us into that presence, when you remind us of your grace, and when you invite us to your table. We praise you, for there is no other like you. Amen.